Matthew chapter 25, after our history and political lesson this morning, let's talk about Jesus' experience with political leaders. We're on Tuesday. At wrapping up Tuesday of his last week. Busy, busy, busy day. Here's what he did. He traveled from Bethany to Jerusalem. When he gets on his way, he talks about that cursed fig tree. When he gets to Jerusalem, he's in the temple. He has the controversies, extended controversies. And you know how when you have a conflict with somebody, it kind of drains you emotionally? Well, he had six of them that went on during that day. Then he has time where he's reflecting and watching how people are worshiping, observing, taking it in, talks about the uh, widow and her might. Then he's, as he's walking through, leaving the city, he has a time of mourning and crying and weeping over the city. The disciples then ask him questions and he gives another lengthy, lengthy discourse called the Olivet Discourse and then he travels back to Bethany a few miles and so it's a busy, busy, busy day. We are at the end of the day. We're sunset time. We're talking about him mourning over the city, leaving, and the disciples then, they start talking and asking questions because they've been leaving the city. They walk away. They're saying, isn't the city beautiful? Isn't it marvelous? And he is saying, yeah, it's a gorgeous city. It's great. However, it's not going to last. They don't understand that. He says it's going to be devastated. Their response was, oh, wait a minute. If he is our master and he's telling us it's going to be destroyed, the Old Testament says that he's going to set up his kingdom right after the city is destroyed. That means we're going to have the kingdom real soon. The kingdom we're asking to sit at the right hand, the left hand. And so they're asking, they're going to start saying, well, when is this going to happen? Matthew 24, verses 1 and 2. That he starts saying, okay, let me give you a timeline. And he gives them a timeline and he tells them what's going to happen before the kingdom of heaven is set up. He's got to fill in the blanks and saying, hey, wait a minute. Just because the city is going to be destroyed doesn't mean it's going to happen right away. There are several things that have to happen before the kingdom, and he gives them information about the tribulation. We've already talked about that information. We've given you some of the details about it, how it is the time that is the worst ever, and that except the days were stopped, everybody would be destroyed. Then he gives information about the re his return. And he talks about how it's going to be sudden, swift, brilliant. It's going to be seen by all people. Many will mourn. And he comes physically back to Jerusalem. Then he adds some more information. Okay, He's going to talk about the gathering of the Jews. How they're going to be gathered from all over the world by the angels. And in light of all that, then he takes as he's giving them facts. Which I understand. We're, we did it somewhat this morning already. We give you a fact of a passage, and then we give you, hey, now in light of all that, here's what you should do. And so in light of all that, he gives them challenges. And that is in the middle of chapter 24, going into chapter 25. He is saying, in light of what's happening, what you need to do is you need to be assured these things will happen. That we've already talked about that. That's done in verses 32, 33, 34, 35. You don't know when it's going to happen. The angels don't know when it's going to happen, but this stuff is going to happen. In fact, not only will you see these, but you as a nation will survive. It's going to take place. Then he says, in light of all that, not only be assured, but you better be watching. When you see some of this starting to happen, you better get ready. Now he's talking to the Jewish people. And he's going to say, it's going to be like in the days of Noah. Where back in the days of Noah, he says that there was, there was warnings given. And there was lots of preaching being given. But people got so preoccupied, they weren't listening. They ignored, don't you be like that. You, you don't be caught off guard. You look, because back in the days of Noah, those who didn't listen, they were taken away to damnation, taken away to judgment. And you don't want to be that. 
And he wraps up that comment by saying, so also shall the Son of Man's coming be. There's going to be warning. It's going to be sudden. There's going to be judgment. And so he's warning them, and he's warning, talking about that, taking away the damnation. You don't want that to happen to you. That is to the Jewish people living in the tribulation period. And then he makes this comment, and here's where he wrapped up last week, verse 40. In verse 40 and following, two will be in the field, the one shall be taken, the other left. Two will be grinding at the mill, the one taken. Watch therefore, for you know not what hour. He's basically saying, you're going to be dealing with your everyday life, you people, you Jewish uh, relatives. So he's saying, you got to be ready. Now, again, I remind you, this isn't the rapture passage. This is about the second coming, what happens during the tribulation. It has nothing to do with the rapture. We're gone, we're out of here. This is Jewish context. And so we who believe in a pre-trib rapture, we've been taken away prior to this point, and the rewards are already happening in heaven. And so he's talking about, I'm coming, it's going to be sudden, it's going to be swift. Then he gives another, another statement to encourage people to be ready. Watch what he goes in verse 43. Gives a, give, repeats the same type of thought, where he says, okay, you got to be watching, got to be watching, I'm going to come back, and some aren't going to be be ready. He says, know this, that if the good man of a house had known what time the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. Therefore, you also be ready for in such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man comes. And so he's using that illustration that all of us understand, that thieves who break in, and some of you have had this, You've had thieves break into your car, break into your house. They don't usually announce it. If they would call you or send you a text, I'm coming to break in, what would you do? You'd get ready. Now, I'm wondering what some of you would do to get ready, okay? You would make sure that he would never or she would never do it again, right? Your get ready could be something that would, could be very serious. He says, well, now listen. That means, therefore, if we don't know, but we're, we're, we have the possibility of being threatened by a thief, then what should we do? We should be ready at all times. Lock the doors. Put the sign up that says, beware of dog. Okay? Get the security, whatever. But the whole idea is to be ready because when the Lord comes, it's going to be sudden, it's going to be swift, and it's unexpected. And when the Lord comes, many people will not be prepared. Those people that you talk to and I talk to, they say, well, when I see things happening like he's starting to come back. Here's what people say about the rapture. When I see people starting to go up, then I'll get ready. What's the problem with that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, how quick is the rapture? The twinkling of an eye, that's not a blink, it's quicker than that. Okay, so by the time they realize, it's, yeah, it's over with, yeah. And so he's saying, well, the second coming is going to be a little bit more drawn out because he has to descend from heaven. But he's saying, you've got to be ready, be ready now. And so he's encouraging them to be ready. Now, he gives a parable right after this. He's not giving more historical information. He's giving um, encouragement, exhortation. Watch the parable. And really interesting parable that he gives where he, where he gives a little bit of data. He says now, um, go a little bit further. Who then, verse 45, who is a faithful and wise servant whom his Lord hath made ruler over his household to give to them meat in due season? Blessed is the servant whom his Lord, when he comes, shall find so doing. Verily I say unto you that he shall make him ruler. Now, <coughs> he does a lot of these parables that have a similar idea. There's a master, he has wealth, he gives somebody responsibility. In this one, he's giving the person responsibility to care for the other servants. He gives them jobs to be doing that is helping the other people. And when the master comes back, similar to the other parables, when the master comes back, He's going to have an accounting. And if the man's been faithful, he'll make him ruler over all of his goods. But 
verse 48. If the man comes back, and our master comes back, and the evil servant shall, uh, is, let's, let's rephrase that. The master isn't coming back. The evil servant says in his heart, my Lord delays his coming, and then begins to smite or take advantage or abuse the fellow servants and to eat and to drink with the drunken. And so instead of doing his job, he's focusing on himself. He says, as he goes on, the Lord of that servant shall come in a day when he looks not for him and in an hour that he is not aware of and shall cut him asunder. Woo! And appoint him his portion with the hypocrites and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so this, other, this evil servant says, you know, the master's not coming. I'm going to engage in pleasures and he's going to be punished. And so Jesus basically says, watch and be ready. Understand in Bible days, that it wasn't uncommon that if somebody was going to be executed, somebody was going to be um, you know, beheaded or something, before they would do that, they would dismember them. They would cut off their ears, their nose, their tongue. And so it's like, okay, it's bad enough to get your head cut off, but before you get your head cut off, you're dismembered. He's talking in the Old Testament, in the ancient Near East culture, that this guy's going to be basically... You know, dismembered when he talks about being cut asunder, verse 51. He's using what often happens in, in capital punishment cases, is it's not just enough to lose their head, they've got to suffer. And so he says this guy's going to suffer and eventually it's going to end up that he's going to be put where there's weeping, gnashing of teeth. We understand what that is. That's hell. And so he's talking about the evil, uh, the evil servants not being ready and just ignoring the warnings. And the whole point is watch, 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 watch. He's not done with it. Go into Matthew chapter 25. He continues with these ideas of be ready. It says, then shall the kingdom of heaven be like unto... What's the story he gives now? Ten virgins. Now before he does that, let's, let's make some observations before we get too, too far distant. Okay, when we come to these texts, we have to rightly divide the word. We can't say, okay, this is a rapture passage. It is not a rapture passage. However, let me make this observation. Is there application that when it comes to the rapture, we should be ready and he's going to come at an unexpected moment? Yeah, there's application. But the, but the pointed here, the point is this is second coming. To interpret, we've got to interpret scripture right. Jesus gives many, many warnings to people. And he keeps on saying it. Get ready, get ready, get ready. Why does he keep on saying that? Because it is so important for people to be ready now rather than wait until the last moment. So if Jesus is giving warnings, what this highlights is his patience. What this highlights is his desire for people to get saved. He is not willing that... Any should perish. And by keeping on saying this time and time again, he's relaying to his audience, I don't want people to be caught off guard. I don't want people to be damned. I want them to be saved. Now let's go, let's do, do this. If Jesus is giving multiple warnings, then doesn't that mean that we should too? To our friends, our family, that we shouldn't just give the gospel once and then, okay, you had your chance. We should give multiple warnings to try and encourage him. Because the alternative of getting ready for Christ's coming is going to be hell. Jesus wants his elect Israelites at this moment, he wants them to know this is the, what the future holds. And so he, he marks down and says, guys, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take place. These events, as terrible as they are, they're going to be fulfilled because I'm predicting them. They are going to happen. It's going to take place. He wants us in the meantime, like the servant who has been given some responsibility, he wants us to be faithful. And again, even though we know the, the, the immediate application is to the Jews in the tribulation, there is a secondary application that says we need to be ready for when the Lord comes for us. 
He's coming for the Jewish nation in the future, but for us before then. And we need to be ready. We need to be faithful so we can hear the commendation. Just as the second coming will be a sure and sudden thing, so will be the rapture. We need to be faithful before that. Let's make another point that uh, right here. We should encourage readiness now, not when you see the rapture taking place. Okay, when I see the, the graves open, then I'll go and witness. You won't have time. Okay, you have to do it now. We have to be ready. Let's make another observation. In this text, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man several times. This is an Old Testament passage uh, or reference. Ezekiel calls himself the Son of Man. Daniel refers to the Messiah as the Son of Man, as does Ezekiel. And so here Jesus is preaching, and he's going to grab this term, the most popular term he uses for himself. If he is using a term in the Old Testament that is for Messiah, and he keeps on using it for himself, what is he obviously doing? He's claiming before the Jews that he is Messiah. It's, it's a no-brainer that he is saying, I'm taking your terms from the Old Testament, I'm Messiah, I'm Messiah. And he keeps saying it. Now, what's, why does he keep saying it? Because the Jewish press, can you imagine the press giving false information about our leader? Can you imagine that happening and not giving the full story? So their press is giving him bad, bad um, Bad press. They're talking against him. He has to keep on saying, no, 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 I'm Messiah, I'm Messiah, I'm Messiah, because they are saying he's not Messiah, he is of, who do they claim he's associated with? Beelzebub with Satan, yeah. So this is just an ongoing conflict. So Jesus is encouraging people to get ready, get ready, get ready, get ready, I'm Messiah, and he's not done. In light of that, he continues on with another parable that is a really important parable that gives us a lot of insights about this future, Matthew 25. Matthew 25 is the parable that we call the parable of the ten virgins because it's about ten young ladies who are invited to a wedding. And so we read the parable and it starts off, and this is your key phrase, the kingdom of heaven shall be like... Okay, and so he's giving us information about his return and what it's going to be like in the future. And so he gives that idea, building upon sudden happening that he's going to return and of concern to the Jewish people. Now, to understand the parable, let's talk about weddings. Weddings in our day, they change. They change from culture, to, they change from community to community. I don't know if you guys ever did this. I've mentioned sometimes when I do marital counseling and the young couples look at me like I have three eyes. Did they ever, in this region of the world, did they ever at wedding times years ago, did they open up the gifts during the reception? Yes. Did they do that? Okay. When I, where I grew up, you always open the gifts at the reception. Okay. And there was reasons for it. What's that? Bigger gifts. <laughs> Isn't that true? It really, didn't it put the pressure on people? You don't come with a coffee mug because everybody's going to see it. And so the, comp the competitors, you know, they have to outdo each other. So it's profitable, okay? So you have the gifts. You know, sometimes it's because the couple's moving away and so they can see what they get before they go. All those good things, okay? And today, do, they, do you ever go to weddings where they open gifts anymore? I have not seen that in recent years. Anybody see that? I've seen the customs where they steal the bride. Do you ever see that one? They steal the bride. Yeah, I went to one service. They stole the bride, and it was their. They said it was a family custom. The bride got taken. The uh, the um, the yeah. They came out and they said, in order to get the bride back, you have to give money. 
So they passed a plate, or whatever you want to call it, through the entire reception group, and then they came back, they counted it, and they came back and they said, it's not enough. <laughs> Why are you doing that? What's going through your mind? Why? Well, you're, you're there. You're there to celebrate. Don't you want the bride back? Come on, say it, what you're thinking. Yeah, I mean, aren't you thinking the way I thought at this moment? Aren't you thinking, I brought a gift. I already brought one gift, and now you're in my pocket, and then I gave something, and you want, you want more for crying out loud. I don't need her back that bad. If he wants, I'm not going on a honeymoon. He is. Let him pay for it. Yeah. So we left. <laughs> okay, different, different weddings, different cult. Now, now some of you are thinking, we should do that other way. Just understand, your guests may not like it. Okay. They, um, so we, have, we got different customs, okay? different things that happen at weddings. Bible customs, you all know this. Okay, it started off with the betrothal. That is, I would get my brother or somebody to go to the Carlson family and say, hey, Harold, Wayne wants to marry Deb, and he'll be willing to pay absolutely nothing, but he wants to take you off her hands, so you know, what do you want to do type thing. And um, he was willing. And uh, so he, he did make me sign documents. But uh, anyhow, the, uh, the betrothal took place. We would set a time. And what often happens today, this is more modern, you send out, when you start right away making plans, what do they send out the first thing? Save the date cards. You get some of those. We, some of you get those ahead of time, and so it's planned. So they would send out a save the date type of an idea. So when they talk about the groom coming unexpectedly, they would have an approximate idea. Do you remember parables talking about this? That the king has a son that's getting married, and he sends out and says, I have a wedding coming, and you mark it. And then it says the date comes. He sends out his messengers, and that's when they say, oh, I have to buy some land, I have to buy some, I bought some oxen, I need to try them out. And you go, what? You test drive the car when? Before you buy it. Okay. And so that's those parables, is that idea that you set a date, you give an approximate time, and then you go, and as we mentioned here a few weeks ago, what, what was the favorite date to do the weddings? Tuesdays. Tuesdays. Remember why Tuesdays? Because the third day of creation, twice it says... It is good. And so the Jews in their mind was, okay, we want every little bit to make this marriage work. And so culturally, it was usually Tuesdays that they would do the weddings. And so then they do the preparation. It could take nine months to a year that they would then have set the date and looked ahead. And the girl is getting herself ready. If she doesn't know skills like cooking, Crash course, learn how, so you don't poison him and get rid of him. Okay, uh, get yourself ready. He's building the house, typically building on an addition to his father's property, which sounds very much like what group in our region? Yeah, okay, that they would do that. Then he would come, and usually he'd come sometime during the day, and they would, he'd come to the bride's house, they would do a little bit of a ceremony at the bride's house, then they would parade through the streets, and they would go back to the parents, the father's house, uh, the groom's parents' house, and back at the house, they would do the official ceremony presentation, the feast, and then there was other things that were kind of really... Okay, in mixed company, I'll just be, try to be tactful. Then everybody would wait. The couple would go and consummate the marriage, and they'd bring back proof that they consummated the marriage. So your first time together is while everybody is downstairs. 
and then they had to prove that you, now it was very Jewish. Now when we don't talk too much about when we have kids in this wedding ceremony and that kind of stuff because it raises more questions than not. But that was the Jewish custom and it was quite, quite blunt. The uh, grooms then would get ready to see his bride and the people and so he would show up and announce, I'm headed toward the bride's house. You, if you were invited, could either meet him at the bride's house or meet him along the way or you'd be, when he is coming down the street, you'd be the, you know how we have people when they're married, they're exiting and everybody's out there and they throw rice or bubbles or bird seed or balloons, doves, all that really wonderful stuff. You know, I love bird seed underneath the portico because it draws birds. And then, yes, and then our portico is covered with, and you walk through it on Sundays. Yes, yes. So we do all these, goofy, these things that are kind of cutesy. They would do this that they would be waiting for the groom and bride to show up. Not to take off, but to show up. And so they would gather there and they would do their whatever they would do. Probably didn't throw rice, probably threw, I don't know, they, they threw anything, okay? Um, I'm just being silly there. So what they would do is they would have this, this pair, this idea. Now, he gives a story based on, on here's how we do this thing. He says, here's how our culture works. He says, there's 10 young ladies who've been invited to a wedding. And he's going to describe these 10 young ladies. Now, here's our description. They all know about the wedding. Okay? They know what day, approximately. They are invited when the day arrives. They're all willing to participate. They want to be there. And so they all show up. But there's a problem. There's only five who are called wise. The other five are called foolish. What is the difference? Oil. Okay, oil in the lamp. And that is because apparently it's a late night wedding or it's late in the day. They're going to need the oil so that this thing that could last into the evenings, which typically lasts in the evening, they would be able to have the oil in their lamps to go through the streets in the procession or to welcome the bride and groom or when they are there and they have more festivities, so they have the oil in their lamp. And so the only ones that, are have, that have sufficient amount of oil are the five wise. And so he gives just a few little things here that, that's kind of interesting. He says the uh, verse 4, the wise took the oil in their vessels, the, broom, the groom tarried, they all slumbered, they slept, and at midnight, so the groom has the date, but he's just for some reason cold feet or anticipation, he waits until midnight, that's great, there was a cry made, hey, the groom's coming, the groom's coming, then all the virgins arose, they trimmed their lamps, okay, they start lighting them up, and the foolish go, whoops, we don't have much, Okay, give us oil of your oil, they say to the other five. And the other five say, uh-uh, we don't have enough there for all of us. You should go and buy some. What's the problem of buying some at this, in this culture? I mean, by the way, in our culture, where would you go? You're headed for Walmart at midnight, okay? That safe place, Walmart at midnight, okay? You're headed there to do your shopping. What's the problem with Bible days? Yeah, most places are shut by sunset. Okay, so they, they were more common sense, you know, when the sun goes down, we go down. Okay, so they lived that culture and says, go get yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom comes. And when they were, that were ready, went in to the feast. And the fe here's your key phrase. When they went into the feast, what happens? The door is, ah, what's that mean? You're not coming in. You're not coming in after midnight, okay? And so the stories, you, you put it all together that he tarries, 
and he tarries beyond what they think. Okay, you watch the parallels. I'm coming back, I'm coming back, okay? But I'm gonna tarry, and you know, you gotta be ready, you gotta be ready. And the five foolish, they're, they're gone. Now they're trying to get ready, but it's too late. It's too late because he's arrived. They're shut without them, and they're not getting entrance. And so the door is shut, nobody's allowed in. It makes perfect sense. But go back to your key phrase. The kingdom of heaven is like, and then you draw your parallels. Your parallels are real simple, that the lack of preparation is going to cost these girls opportunity to participate in the feast. Oh, 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 by the way, are the Jews invited to a feast? In the Bible, are the Jews invited to a feast? The answer is yes. Jesus gave stories about we are going to have a feast with him because we are the bride, and who's invited to witness this? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, or Jacob, Isaac, uh, Abraham, and uh, all of his descendants are going to be the invited people to come and witness the feast. And so the idea is that you have to watch and be ready. So we can make some applications here, okay? And if we were to preach this, we would say, wait a minute, the second coming of Christ is imminent. In the tribulation period, you've got an approximate time that it's going to be coming. He's going to be coming, but he could delay on that day he could be up until midnight. He better be ready. He got to be ready. And he's warning them because once he comes, there is no second chance. That's the key of what he's getting at. No second chance. No second chance. And he's warning them time and time again. Now, some will point to the figure here. And uh, this you can do with whatever you want. Some point to the figure as being symbolic because Old Testament oil being symbolic that whether they have the Holy Spirit or not. If that's true. Okay, and here's, here's what some would preach. Then the point is, you need to have your own salvation. You can't borrow it from somebody else. You need not to just look the part, but you need to have the possession of the Spirit of God. It's not enough to be in good company of others who intend to get into heaven or who are ready to get into heaven. You cannot borrow somebody else's salvation. So if that's a truism, that there is a parallel of that oil with the Holy Spirit, then that has strong application. They must be born again personally because there's no second chance later on. That's his point. That's what he's been driving at. No second chance, no second chance, no second chance. Be ready at all times. Then he doesn't stop. He continues with an application. What is, the, by the way, just, and the, this strikes me odd. He's making application, he's making application, he's warning, he's warning, he's warning, he's warning. What does that say to you? If he keeps on keeping on giving warnings, what's that mean? This is really important stuff. He really cares. This is, this is something you got to get. And so he keeps on, keeps on, keeps on. It's like land. You know, if, if we were doing homiletical training, how to do a sermon, we'd be saying to the young man, land the plane, get out, get off, you're done. But Jesus, being God and knowing what's so important here, he keeps at it, keeps at it. He's hammering, 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 trying to get people to understand this is important. Don't, you know, if you walk out of the house and you keep saying something as you're walking out of the house, what do you want to make sure they don't do? They don't forget what you're telling them. Because if you say it three dozen times, maybe, maybe that teenager will remember 30 seconds later. Yes, no? Okay, 20, 20 seconds later. Okay, but it, that's his point. That's, take it from the point where Jesus is. This is important stuff. Now, the 10 talents is giving us a lot of more information about what's going on. Now, watch what he does again. Key phrase, verse 14, key phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like, and then he gives a story. This is this return. This is all like what's happening. Now, you read the story. 
It's a man who is traveling to a far country. He's leaving. He distributes his goods to his servants. You can read this through where he gives the first one five talents. He gives the second one how many? Two talents. What does he give the third guy? Did you catch it? How many? One in verse 15. There's a phrase in verse 15 that is critical. Did you catch the critical phrase? How did he determine who got five, two, or one? Every man according to his... Ah, so that's the key phrase. Okay, key phrase is every man according to his ability. This wasn't just a random you, you, you. This was what could they handle? What could they deal with? Okay, and when he brings the accounting, what's interesting is number the one who gets five and the one who gets two, they both increase to the... To, this, you know, the comparable number, one doubles it and the other one doubles his, but they both get the same rewards, okay? Is Jesus so concerned about the number of talents and investment as opposed to just do, what, do with what you got? It's more of do with what you've got because do we have varied talents compared one to another? The answer is yes. It's not what the talent is or what the gift is. It's what you do with what you've got. Okay, that's the key phrase. By the way, just to give you a, uh, an idea, if we go back into Bible culture, okay, and we get an idea based on what was the economy then and what with inflation and all that, here's an approximate what these guys are being put in their hands in those days if we compared it to today. Basically, when we're saying somebody gets a talent, we're saying they get 6,000 days wages. Figure that out. 6,000 days wages. That kind of comes to about 16 years of work. Okay, is it a big amount of money? Yeah. Yeah, this is 16 years of what you're, you're filling your taxes out now, 16 years worth is what, you know, one talent, just one. So if we take the guy who's got the two talents, He's getting 32 years of work. That's a lifetime of investment that he's being given to watch over. What does that tell you about the master, by the way? Rich. This guy's rich. This guy's rich beyond our wildest dreams. If we take the guy who's given five talents, he's giving 82 years worth of somebody's income. So that, that guy with five talents, he is given a lot to be dealing with. So it tells us a little bit about the master. It tells us that this master is a very wealthy person. What else does it tell you about his relationship with his servants? He trusts them, okay? You want to throw any other words out? Is he generous? Yeah, yeah. I, it, it's phenomenal that he would do that, okay? That he would give them this. So keeping in sense, the, five guy, the guy with five talents goes out, he says he trades. When the master comes back, he trades and he's multiplied it. He's got five more talents. The guy who has the two talents comes back, he says, I've, I've doubled it as well. I've done something with it. The response that both these men give is going to be the same. Or the, the reward is going to be the same. The third guy, though, comes and he says, okay, he doesn't have anything. He just hit it, and he tells why. I hit it because I knew that you're a tough guy to work for and that you would expect a lot, so rather than upset you, I just hit it. So when they come in, they get their accounting. You know, the, the long time, the master comes back. The first one says, I double it. The second one says, I double it. They both hear the same thing. 
They both hear the well done thou faithful servant. Okay? They're commended for it. They both are rewarded with opportunities to rule. Because he says to both of them in this passage, if you jump down you find it wherever it's at, that he says, like verse 21, well done thou good and faithful servant, you have been faithful over a few things. I, I, by the way, the word that strikes me kind of funny, you've been faithful over, uh, yeah, 82 years worth of income. To me, I wouldn't call that few. I would say, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But to the master, it's few things. It's, uh, he says, you've been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. And so he's giving them, he's giving them not a monetary reward, but a responsibility that they can rule on his behalf. And so he says there, then he says, enter into the joy of the Lord, of your Lord. And so the commendation, the encouragement, the presence, and so both of them get that same type of thing. The third man comes back, and because of his, his apprehensions about the master, because of his negative thinking, because he makes the comment, where it says, verse 25, I was afraid, I went and hid the town. Well, I should be up to verse 24. Lord, I knew that you are a hard man to work for, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you have not strawed. And by the way, by the way, do you think he's giving a fair assessment of the master? With what you know just so far? No, why not? Is the master this hard, cruel man that he's depicting? He's very, very, very generous. Is he trusting? Hasn't that been proven already? So this guy has what type of view of his master? He's got a wrong view. He's got a totally wrong view of his master. Now maybe it's because he didn't get the same as somebody else. Maybe it's because you know, he thinks God, the, the master's playing favorites. I don't know. But he has a terrible view. And as a result, the master, the master says, take away his talent that he was given. And oh, by the way, verse 26, what does the master call him? Wicked and... Yeah, because he says, even if you thought this were true, why didn't you do something? You ought to have at least put it in the bank or exchanged the money so that there's something. Take therefore the talent from him and give it unto the guy who has the ten talents. So it's given to the ones who are faithful. He's cast into the outer darkness of hell. And so he's reprimanded. All this put together brings us to these thoughts. Okay, The master expects the servant to do something with what he's entrusted to him. Failure to do anything is serious, serious violation and, and upsets the master gravely. So we have all this that's going on. Um, let's make some applications, okay, with that. Israel, in the pointed application of this story, Israel is given many opportunities and abilities to serve God. Is that, would you agree with that? In the Old Testament, did they get a lot of blessings? Yeah, did they get, did God give them riches? Yes. Did he give them victories over others? Oh yeah, he gave them a lot. The Messiah was going to come back one day and hold them accountable for what they had done. They, those who are faithful would be rewarded both verbally, positionally. We know as well those who are not faithful in serving. And by the way, it's not the service that gets them into the kingdom. It is their personal belief and understanding. But what he's pointing out is your view of God determines your service. If you've served God with the idea that... Um, that uh, it's all about me proving myself worthy. Well, then you're wrong because this is, his gifts to us are all by grace. 
If you don't serve because you think he's cruel, he's uncaring, he's not going to judge, you don't have a right view of God. So it brings us back to the point that these people serve or don't serve based upon their relationship with the master. Their works don't get them into the kingdom. Their works prove whether they have faith to get into the kingdom. And faith without works is dead. Okay, so we've got that, that point. The, uh, the young man, the one, he is, his reward is hell because of his unbelief about the master. Here's our lessons that we can play. What is meant for Israel does have some application to us, okay? By virtue of, okay, we're serving different era, different time period, but are we also being given talents and opportunities? Yes. Are we also going to have a judgment day? Ours is a different judgment day. Ours is the Bema seat. And so by application, what we know is this. Our God is fabulously wealthy, beyond our description. He is gracious, beyond our comprehension. If we start just listing the blessings he's given, they are phenomenal. Our problem is we get like Adam and Eve, that we see the one tree that we're not supposed to have and we focus on it. And we forget all the other trees he's given us. And so we have to be careful of that. The distribution of talents varies from person to person based upon our abilities. Some of you have far more opportunities, gifts, talents than the rest of us because you are more gifted. You are more inclined and more able and more trustworthy at times. And so the point is we are all supposed to be faithful. God expects us to do something spiritually, eternally profitable with what's been given to our uh, into our hands. It could be our education. It could be our, wel our wealth. It could be our job opportunities. It could be our vocal skills, our teaching skills, whatever it be. We're supposed to be using them for the Lord. There will be time of giving an account. We understand that. We talked about and preached that last week for you and me. Faithful service will be rewarded. Lack of service is an indication of not knowing God not understanding who he is, what he's done, and what he expects from us. The result of that is going to be eternal damnation for some. Let's continue. Faithful service results in verbal commendation. It results in opportunities. This to me is phenomenal. I love this, pass, this part. Opportunities for faithful service is more opportunities to serve. You know how some of you are the type of people that you can't sit still? Yeah, okay. You know, be still and know that I am God. We, we should do that, but there's like, okay, I, I need to be doing something. The vacation, I need to be doing something. I just You're an active person. In eternity, we will be active. And in eternity, if we're faithful now, we aren't going to get a bigger, fluffier call, uh, cloud, you know, a my pillow cloud. We're going to get opportunities to serve him. So if I'm faithful here, he'll give me more opportunities to serve in the future, to uh, rule with him, to reign with him. By the way, I think that's, this, is a, this is the passage and the principle we developed our TNT program off of, if some of you remember, years ago, is that if the teens are faithful in, throughout the school year, what's their opportunity? It should be an opportunity to serve harder and more at a focused time during the summer where they go on their missions trip, where they have more opportunity to serve. Why? Because service is a privilege and an honor, and we want the teens to realize working and serving is not a chore. It is an it's an opportunity. It's an honor. It's a privilege. So if you do well here, we're going to take you and make you work harder on a missions trip where you get the opportunity to do a VBS or do something. There'll be some fun stuff, but the focus is service. Why? Because service is great. Uh, by the way, don't you think there's too much laziness going on in our world? Okay, we need to teach service and work and activity for the Lord. It's a good thing. 
It's a fun thing and it's a great thing. Before, therefore, being faithful during this time when the master is far away is what we should be doing. So we can go on from there and we can talk about what Jesus has given, a lot of details about the tribulation, about his return, about the gathering of the Jews, and then he gives us the next. He goes back now after giving all the warnings. Now he jumps back into the sheep goat judgment. This is history. This is now chronology. He's been warning about a judgment. Now he tells what that judgment is. It is a judgment of the sheep and the goats. And if you read in the text, you start reading verse 31. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, all the holy angels, they shall sit he shall sit upon his throne and before him shall be gathered all nations and he's going to judge the people to determine who goes in the kingdom who doesn't go into the kingdom and so there's a whole judgment here that this is the one that I said last Sunday morning I, or Sunday night I said I didn't mention that there's two major judgments in heaven this is the third judgment but it's on earth and it is the judgment of the Jewish people and everybody who survived the tribulation. It's not going to affect us. Okay? It's not going to affect people living here and now. Uh, basically, the other two judgments will. But this is an important judgment. It'll take a whole bunch of time, and we've run out of time.